I am. I'm uh, Ben Ice. I'm a pastor in uh, Simi Valley, California. So I've been out there since 2018. And I was a pastor uh, in South Carolina for a number of years. So I'm a teaching uh, pastor in, in California. And out there, I was the South Carolina, I was the family life pastor for a number of years. And so I'll probably talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. But our session is called Scripture Meditation to Life, Life Transformation. So I thought I'd start off with a little story. So there was a guy once, a fictitious story, okay, this is not true. There's a guy once who uh, was given, this was told by Jay Adams, so uh, when he was alive, so this is, I'll give credit to him. Uh, there was a guy who was particularly given over to worry, and uh, he worried constantly about his finances, about politics, about the safety of his family. Um, he, you know, he watched MSNBC, Fox News, <laughs> scroll on social media, you know, so he just consumed by worry. And, uh, and so he was, you know, constantly down, depressed. He's one of those guys you just didn't really want to talk to because it was, you know, he was a depressing person to talk to. And, uh, but then one day people saw him bouncing around town. He was optimistic and he was happy. And so they said, you know, what's going on? What, what's changed? And he said, well, I've hired a guy. And this guy um, is, his full-time job is he takes care of people's worries. And so I pay him to worry about things for me. So I don't have to worry about it. I pay him. And so they said to him, wow, like, how much does that cost? And he's like, it's $1,000 a week. And they, the crowd said to him, well, that's pretty expensive. Like, can you afford that? And he goes, I don't know. That's something he's supposed to worry about. <laughs> so, well, worry is, is a thinking problem, right? Worry is, um, you know, the old King James says in, in Matthew 6 that we're not to, to, we're to take no thought. In other words, we're not to continually think about something that we can't control, something that is in, in faith of our, in ourselves and not faith in God. And, um, and so, really, worry is meditation on things that are things out of my control and things that I'm not trusting God in. So we're talking about meditation today, but we're, talking, we're going to be talking about meditating on truth, meditating on God and his word, and how that man meditated, it affected his emotions, it affected his decisions, it affected his demeanor, it affected his actions. And so we're going to talk about scripture meditation to life transformation, meditating on scripture and seeing how God can use that to transform our life. And what I want to do this morning is convince you that God's, God spiritually transforms us into the image of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit renewing our mind. And one key component of renewal of the mind is meditation on God's word. So let me establish some theological presuppositions. First of all, we're talking about progressive sanctification. And of course, positional or definite sanctification is involved in this. And so is eventually future sanctification, but particularly this morning, we're just focused on progressive sanctification, which is the Holy Spirit's ongoing work to progressively change you to be like Christ. So it's progressive, it's over time, it's, the goal is Christ-likeness, so you can grow to know, and I want you to notice that, to know, that's involved your mind, to know God, and it's relationally as well, but think about your mind in that regard, to love God and then to obey him more and more. So it's growing to know, to love, and obey him more and more. And so just briefly, I'm going to go over a couple verses 
just to think about our the goal here, the goal in 2 Timothy 3.17 is that the man of God may be complete, may be mature, equipped for every good work. And of course, what is God's means by which to do that? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it's what? It's the scripture, that's right. Ephesians 4.13, it's that uh, we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, and then here's the goal to maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Colossians 1.28, that we may present everyone mature. So it's, the goal is spiritual maturity, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, we think about Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says that God's good work in us, those who love God, the, God's good work in us in verse 29 is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so the means by which God sanctifies us is the Holy Spirit's renewal of the mind. With the knowledge of God, which, uh, which cultivates affections for God and moves the will to obey God. And so I'm highlighting here really three aspects here, and that is the renewal of the mind with the knowledge of God, which cultivates affections for God and moves the will to obey God. And I'm going to show you some of these scriptures as we go throughout this, but I want you to kind of set this up as really my premise, really, based upon everything else we're going to talk about. And that is that that God accesses really the transformation. He transforms us and he accesses the inner person through the mind. So the access to the inner person is through the mind. And the Holy Spirit is the one who renews us via the knowledge of God. And where do we find the knowledge of God? It's found in the Word of God. And so also notice in here you have the affections and... Theologically, we believe that God is the one who works in us both to will, so he puts the desire within us, and to do. He's the one who gives, gives us the ability. And of course, God is at work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. I don't think I have that one. No, I don't have that one up there. But it's God. God has given us salvation. We are to work out that salvation. And God is the one who puts those affections within us. He's the one who gives us the ability to fulfill his will to obey him. And the target of sanctification is that inner man. It's the inner person. It's the heart. The heart really is the totality of your inner self. And we're going to look at some quotes in a moment, just to say this at first, and then we'll go into it more in depth. There's really three primary elements that are included in the heart and I'm not a trichotomist in here. It's not what I'm saying. But this is but they're, what they're showing. What I'm going to show you here, what the scripture speaks about, what some of these theologians I'm going to put up here speak about, is that there's three primary elements of the heart, and that is this, there's the mind, the affections, and the will. Craig, here we go. Craig uh, Troxel in with all your heart, orientating your mind, desires, and will towards Christ, wrote this. The heart is the governing center of a person when used simply it reflects the unity of our inner being. And when, it, when used comprehensively, it describes the complexity of our inner being. As composed of mind, what we know, desires, what we love, and will, what we choose. And so what he's saying here is the scripture presents the heart as like the control tower. It's, the, it's what controls our, our knowledge, our desires, and our will, what we choose to do. And so and he's saying really the heart is composed of these essential elements. The old 17th century pastor 
John Flavel uh, wrote this. Everything we think, and so notice these words he's using, think, desire, and choose, and then live out, is generated from this one controlling source, and it's governed from this one point. He's speaking of the heart. Mark Knoll wrote in the foreword to John Piper's book, Think, the ultimate goal The ultimate goal of life is that God be displayed as glorious. The way we glorify him is by knowing him truly, that's the mind, by treasuring him above all things, desires, and by living in a way that shows he is supreme, the supreme treasure, and that's our will. That's that's living out, that's obedience to Christ. And so so you can see like those three elements there, and it's gonna be important as we go through some of these texts of scripture. Um, let's do one more here. The Puritan Richard... Where am I at here? Sibis. There we are. Richard Sibis says, And because knowledge, that's, so it's knowing God, and the affections mutually help one another, it is good to keep our affections of love and delight by all sweet inducements and divine encouragements for what the heart liketh best, the mind studieth most... Those that can bring their hearts to delight in Christ know most of his ways. And so it's not like these are separate things. These are all interconnected, right? So your affections and your will and your mind, they're all interconnected. And that's what he's, that's what he's saying here. But God's means to access our inner person, what I want you to notice in all these, is God's means to access our inner person is through the mind, is through what we think. And the mind is the means to know, it's to understand, it's to see, it's to perceive. It's what we use to, to, to understand the truth of God, to believe the truth of God. The mind is the access point to transform the emotions and the will, ultimately what we think or what we say and what we do. And, but again, but according to what he's saying here, the mind does not exist in isolation. It's affected by the affections, by the desires, and also what we do. And so this is what the heart is. And the goal of sanctification then is to glorify God by being progressively changed to be more and more like Christ so we can grow to love, to know love and obey him more and more. And so kind of my, I guess my proposition here this morning is that the Holy Spirit renews the mind with the knowledge of God, which cultivates affections for God and moves the will of God. And my main focus here this morning is on the renewal of the mind. And so would you go to Ephesians 4? If you have a Bible or if you have a phone, you can turn there too. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're just going to look at this from verse 17. We're not going to look at the whole text of Scripture. But I want to hone in on what does this mean to have the mind be renewed with the knowledge of God. So the Holy Spirit renews the mind with the knowledge of God. Again, that's somewhat of my premise here this morning. So Ephesians 4, you can see this contrast between how the world thinks and how God has taught us in Christ to think. So Ephesians 4, look at verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. That's the word noose. Noose is a key term for describing the faculty of thinking, our thought process, understanding. So the problem he's saying here in these verses is the unregenerate man has a mind that's distorted 
to value empty and worthless things. Look at verse 18. So you can notice his focus on his mind, his understanding. He'll encompass the heart as well. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance. So again, going back to this this, this blindness, this, this um, distortion in their mind, the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So you can see, you know, they're practicing impurity. They're walking, um, they're, you know, walking as Gentiles walk. So you can see this, this, the actions, the, the will to do something that's sinful. You can see the desi- sinful desires in there. But I think I also want you to notice that he's, he's pointing to like their mind as that which is distorted. In fact, you can see this in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. I'll just put it on the screen up here. And that is that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. So that's the unregenerate. And in, in their case, the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. And the light really is understanding. It's the understanding in the mind. Their mind is darkened in their understanding. So the light of the glorious of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Romans 1, 21. Right unrighteousness distorts the world's capacity to think. So remember, Romans chapter 1 says that their minds are futile, that they're darkened, they're foolish, and, uh, and it's because they've given themselves over to sinful desires and because by nature they are sinners. So if you look back in Ephesians 4, the contrast to the unregenerate way of thinking is... The regenerate were taught Christ. So that's what he's saying there in verse number 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so again, notice the focus on the mind. The gospel, the knowledge of Christ and his work was applied to their minds when they were unregenerate. And God supernaturally gave them light. He gave them understanding and he gave them life. That's the new birth. And so if you think about this passage on the screen up here, the God of this world, Satan, blinded their minds, but God is the one who uses the gospel to shine the light into their hearts. Their hearts have understanding. So the mind within the heart is awakened to understand the truth of their sinfulness, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why verse 6 in Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So that was a supernatural event, right? That's creation, Genesis chapter 1. Has shown in our hearts, so he created within us a new person, a new self. Has shown in our hearts to give us the light. So there's the mind, the understanding, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So it's the, it's the knowledge of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and then what's interesting is you go through this passage and Paul speaks about some of the trials that he went through and he's talking about how he's, you know, he's beaten down. I'm not going to say it all correctly because I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but he's, you know, he's beaten down, but he's not in despair. You know, he's, he's afflicted, but he's not crushed. And, and the point is he's going through a lot of problems. And what's interesting is he's talking about, you know, things that would cause you to despair, to lose heart. And what he says then in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we don't lose heart. He's so, so, you know, what, so what happens when you have trials in your life is you, you know, kind of like those trials can 
wrap around your heart and pull your soul down, so your heart down, so you feel down and depressed. You feel like you're forgotten. I think it's one of the, even the words he uses in there. It's like you, you feel like you're forgotten of God. But he didn't feel that way. He didn't believe that was the truth. And why is that? First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 4.16, though our outer self is wasting away. So yeah, there is pain in this world. Death is working uh, um, within our bodies and upon our bodies. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. So I think what you see in 2 Corinthians 4 is this renewal of the mind of Paul to say that that on a daily basis, the Holy Spirit is renewing me to think a certain way, and therefore I'm not losing heart. I'm not controlled by my feelings. I'm controlled by the mind of Christ, given by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you look back in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, I think what you see in verses 20 and 21 is that he's saying this is the gospel that came, and when the gospel came, the unregenerate heart by the power of the Holy Spirit was made alive. And, and then you look in verses 22 through 24, and he's here he's talking about what were we taught. So he said you were taught in Christ. Well, what were you taught? Well, you were taught verses 22 through 24. And I'm not going to get into um, an exegesis of that necessarily, but I think 22, verse 22, verse 24, gives the basis for sanctification of the mind, the renewal of the mind, and that is it's our union with Christ I think that correlates with Colossians 3 and Romans chapter 6, which teaches that our old self was crucified with Christ. Our new self is raised to walk in newness of life. But my focus is on verse 23. So I want to, I want to hone in on verse 23. Well, actually, let's look at verse 24 real quick, because to notice here that God has created within us a new self. So we are a new creation. And then verse 23, God is doing something regularly within us, and that is he's renewing us, we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And the spirit of your mind is that innermost part of your mind. It's the disposition, the attitude of your mind. And so to be renewed is a present tense. It's something that's that's continually happening uh, to us. And I say to us because it's a passive. It's the Holy Spirit doing this within us. We know this is the Holy Spirit because Oh, there you go. There's the verse up there. Sorry about that. And we notice the Holy Spirit because what does Titus 3, 5 say? It says that we are, the Holy Spirit washes us. Uh, first of all, he's, it's the washing of regeneration and then renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who renews us. So the Holy Spirit renews the mind with the knowledge of God, which cultivates affections for God and moves the will to obey God. And so... I'm just going to buzz through some verses to think about this because I just want to make sure we're confident that this is a progressive work of God, of the Holy Spirit within our hearts, within our, I should say, within our minds, which our mind is within our hearts. And this is something he's changing us day by day as we look within the scripture. We look at Christ, the glory of Christ within the scripture. So 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so... We're viewing within the scripture Christ's glory, and we're being being transformed into the same image. So we're being made more and more like Christ from one degree of glory to another. So it's progressive, and it comes by the Spirit of God. In Colossians 3.10, we, we've been put on the new self. So this has been given to us by Christ, by the, through the redemption of Christ, by applied by the Holy Spirit at regeneration, which is being renewed in knowledge. So there's a daily renewal, and then it's in the knowledge of the image of the creator, of the one who's the creator, so the image of God. And then Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, 
And this is, again, speaking about how we think. So this isn't the verse that says we shouldn't watch Disney. Although maybe there's some application there, I guess. But you're, the idea is that you're not to be conformed. You're not to think like the world thinks. Don't value what the world values. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So God transforms us as the Holy Spirit renews our mind. And then, of course, we just talked about this earlier. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. That we are matured as the scripture um, is taught to us, as we are influenced by the scripture. So all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for approval, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so there's a basic like overview of sanctification, okay? But my, my point is what I'm trying to hone in on is this like the importance of the mind in regard to sanctification. And of course, this is in contrast to what many Christians, many churches focus on, and that is on feelings. You know, if you ask someone, what do you believe? And they, you know, sometimes their first comment would be, well, I feel that God, you know, and I don't think they really mean feel. I mean, I think they mean think. But I think it does reflect that our world naturally, just even Christianity naturally thinks about um, what they believe in their feelings. And they actually relate the word heart to feelings. You know, so you say, I, I, I love God with my heart, and I but I think with my head, you know, so they actually think about their heart as in regard to what I feel in my mind is something I think. And which I, again, I hope I demonstrated that's not actually accurate, but my point is that they operate by, um, going to, uh, following their emotions, their, their feelings. They, they come to church wanting an experience. They come to church wanting to, and we talked, and this was talked about a couple of days ago in one of the sessions that we heard in the evening, and I, I think it's interesting, R.C. Sproul wrote this in 1982. So think about 1982. How many were alive in 1982? Hopefully, okay, some people weren't in this room. I was five years old, so I didn't read this. But, um, but this is what he wrote. We live in what, we may, what may be the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Western civilization. Burning hearts are not nourished with, by empty heads. So it's interesting, he describes that time, 1982, as a time when it's the most anti-intellectual period in the history of... Do you think it's, like, gotten better or worse? <laughs> I mean, especially with this AI stuff coming, right? Okay, well, we're not going to go into that right now. But, but it's interesting, you even go back farther into the 17th century, and this was written by the English Puritan minister, John Flabel, in the 1600s. Worldly cares and encumbrances have greatly increased the neglect of our hearts. The heads and hearts of... And think about that. What, what's he talking about? Like in the 1600s, what did they have to... You know, what did they have to, to get in their way? The worldly cares. Well, they had stuff. Obviously, he's writing about it. So, uh, The heads and hearts of multitudes have uh, been filled with such a crowd and noise of worldly business that they have declined in their zeal and their love and their delight in God, in their heavenly, serious, and profitable way of conversing with men. Which is actually somewhat prophetic, doesn't it? <laughs> like They don't even really know how to talk to other people. That's our world, isn't it? How miserably we have entangled ourselves in this wilderness of trifles. We have had so many things to do that we have not been able to take care of our inner selves. And what he's recognizing here is, even back in the 17th century, that people were, were distracted, and the, the thing they neglected 
the most important thing they neglected, as far as themselves, were their inner self, what they think about, their heart. And in fact, if you look down one last time in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm not going to go through all these passages, but it's interesting, if you look in verse 25, he says, therefore, and that conjunction is going to say, Here, here's how you apply this, here's how you apply the section of scripture we just talked about. And what you're going to see in the rest of this chapter is that he says that you're to, you're to put off, discard the old self, don't live according to the ways of the world, put on the new self, and then the process by which God aligns our desires and our will to, in verse 25, tell the truth and then and instead of lying, and to give to those in need instead of stealing, to speak grace instead of speaking corrupt words, to forgive instead of malice, is by the renewal of the mind. So look at verse 25, and you can see the reason that we're to speak the truth is what? For we are members of one another. And that's a quotation from Zechariah chapter 8. So it's interesting, he's saying like, he's, he's referring to, and I'm, I'm assuming I guess the church should have known that. I don't know how many of us knew that. I mean, I didn't. I had to read a commentary to figure that out. But the point is, is that notice how God's word sanctifies the mind for us to think properly about truth and about lying. So Paul taught that God's work in sanctification of the believer is to so renew the mind with God's word that our affections and our will conforms to his will. And the purpose, though, of renewing the mind is, is not just to you know, have a Christian way of thinking. It's so we can know God. Right? It's, it's, it's about a relationship with God. So we can know God, so we can love God, so we can obey God. And the renewal of the mind is about knowing him in more fellowship, delighting him in, uh, in, in more joy, and obeying him more completely. And so Craig Troxell writes this in With All My Heart, With All Your Heart. Nevertheless, the ultimate goal of the renewing of the mind is not to discern sin and falsehoods, although that is an aspect of it but to fellowship with the living and true God. Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant in which God promised they shall know me. So it's about knowing Christ. It's about knowing and having a relationship with him. So that's, that's the ultimate goal of the renewal of the mind. So really the next question I want to ask then is, what does renewing your mind look like practically? Like what is the, how does the scripture speak of renewing your mind? And, and I'm more thinking about, like, what does it look like on a daily basis to renew your mind? And I think it looks like biblical meditation. And I want to show this to you from the scriptures as well. So when you think of meditation, and we're not talking about yoga, stretchy pants, whatever those things are called, or, or, or you know, emptying your mind, you know, Middle Eastern kind of thought on meditation. This is biblical meditation. Meditation is the bringing together of the whole heart. So the whole heart, that is your mind, that is your will, that is your emotions. It's bringing together of the whole heart in private contemplation on God and worship of God. So it's contemplating God and it's worshiping God as we think about, as we put our affections upon God, as we um, seek to know how we can obey God more fully. Medita- meditating is utilizing the mind, the affections, and the will to know, love, and obey God more fully. And so here's a definition that I came up with, with for meditation. Meditation is intentionally, so notice that's the will. It's intentionally and affectionately, that's the emotions, the desires. Contemplating, that's the mind. And contemplating isn't just having like one thought. It's, it's the idea of an extended period of thinking about something. 
contemplating God in his word. So God is the object, right? And we think about God through, uh, by means of his word. And I I would say this on the side, and that is that the Puritans spoke of meditation on the word of God, but also on the work of God. And so they got some of those examples from like Matthew chapter 6, where, you know, Christ says, think of the lilies, you know, or Proverbs where you're to think, think upon the ant, go to the ant, thou sluggard. So uh, the point is that, um, they, they, and I th- which I think is legitimate, I'm not focusing on that today, um, but they're, they're saying that's, that's actually a very helpful th- thing to meditate on, is the works of God in creation, his general revelation. But we're speaking specifically about special revelation and setting our mind, contemplating the word of God in and that is the scripture. And so think about this passage right here. So Psalm 39, 3-4. My heart became hot within me. So as I mused, so what, are we, what is he talking about? He's talking about meditation. As I meditate, as I'm using my mind to think about, and what's he thinking about? Well, in the context here, he's thinking about the short, the brevity of his life. He's thinking about the eternality of God. And so he's, he's, he's musing upon God and upon having really a correct view, accurate view of himself. The fire burned. Well, what's the fire that's burning? It's his desire, right? His desire for God. And so as I muse, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. And and again, I think you can see the will here coming forward. It's like, then I, I, this is, I praise God. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. So I think this is a great example of meditation right here. He's meditating with his mind putting his affections upon God and his word and, um, and seeking to know how he can obey God more fully and praise. Meditation on God's word is one of the most important spiritual disciplines. I think it's probably one of the most important spiritual disciplines that we have neglected as Christians, as churches, and as families the Puritans were masters of meditation. And so they would, they would think about, they would have us to think upon things like sermons and Sunday school lessons and uh, Bible studies and personal devotions and scripture memory. And they would say like, it's, it's not helpful just to listen and go home. Actually, the fruit of, of that, the scripture is meditating on that afterwards. And so they viewed meditation on God's word as the means to know God, meditation as the means to enjoy God, and meditation as the means to obey God. So Philip Henry, a Puritan, said this, It's easier to go six miles to hear a sermon than to spend 15 minutes on meditating upon it when I come home. So he's saying like it's it's easier to you know if you want to put a modern context and actually he didn't say fifteen minutes I like changed it because he said you know a quarter of an hour which what does that mean okay got to meditate on that one I guess right but you know it's it's easier to, to drive an hour to church than it is to think about the sermon for fifteen minutes and how it applies to my life and so he's talking about this the value of meditating on God's word. Uh, true meditation is when, another 16th century Puritan, true meditation is when a man doth so meditate, so think about he's putting his mind upon Christ, meditate on Christ, as to get his heart inflamed, so these are his desires, with the love of Christ. So meditate on the truths of God 
as to be transformed into them. And so meditate of sin as to get his heart to hate sin. Another Puritan, well, he's not a Puritan, but he's, I guess he kind of seemed like one, J.I. Packer. Well, I'm going to write, I, I think I ha, I'm missing a Puritan up here, so I'm going to go ahead and I'll say uh, another Puritan here. Thomas Watson wrote this. So he was another Puritan. A Christian without meditation is like a soldier without arms or a workman without tools. Without meditation, the truths of God will not stay with us. The heart is hard, the memory slippery, and without meditation, all is lost. So he's saying without meditation, it's like a, it's like a soldier that doesn't have weapons. It's a workman that doesn't have tools. He might know the trade, but he doesn't know he can't use it. Jay Packer wrote this about meditation. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God. So you notice he's saying this is worship under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. And one thing that is, I think, the most common thread you see with these Puritans and even throughout Scripture when you see men and women who know, enjoy, and obey God is that they meditated on the Lord. One example is a good, a really good example is George Mueller. Of course, we know George Mueller as one who um, prayed and trusted God and God used him in remarkable ways. But have you thought about George Mueller in regard to meditation? George Mueller valued meditation as one of the most important things. In fact, he says here the most important, the most important thing I had to do, George Mueller says in his autobiography, the most important thing I had to do was to read the word of God and to meditate on it. Thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, and instructed. And he goes on to say in his autobiography, we may profitably meditate with God's blessing, although we are spiritually weak. So it's like, I don't feel like meditating. <laughs> I'm so weak right now. And he actually says this, the weaker we are, the more meditation we need to strengthen our inner man. Meditation on God's word has given me the help and the strength to pass peacefully through deep trials. And you could think through, we could talk through right now, if we had time, the trials that George Mueller went through. And so we primarily think about him like, oh, he was a man of prayer, and he was a man of prayer. But he was a man who meditated on God's word, and he saw really the source of his spiritual life from meditating on the scripture. So again, this Puritans emphasize the need to meditate on God's word after sermons, after Bible studies, after personal reading of the scripture, and also with scripture memory. And so this morning, I really am going to focus more on scripture memory and uh, just thinking about how we are, how are we to think about God's word on a regular basis, particularly putting God's word in our heart and mind and, and keeping it locked in there for long term. I think that a lot of times people think about scripture memory and they think about it in regard to, you know, just... Uh, Memorizing something and kind of being done with it. Or I think about it like when I was growing up, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad's actually in the back, so 
If I, nothing's not accurate, you can raise your hand to know. But I grew up in a pastor's home. I grew up in a church that we had, you know, kids programs. And so you had your VBSs and you had your other programs and you memorized scripture. And but but honestly, here's what scripture memory was for me growing up. It was you know uh, that kids program starts at six thirty. It's six twenty, and I'm going. Uh, by the way, I have a verse. Actually, I have a verse memorized tonight, you know. And so I get my book and I, you know, look at it in the car on the way there. And it's dark, and you know, because the sun sets early in Indiana, and so I'm trying to look at it. I can't really see it. I get in there, I pass it to the person, and and they help me with the first word and the fourth word and the sixteenth word, and and then by the end, when I come out, I've said like four or five verses, and I didn't even study the other ones, you know. And what's interesting, what happened to me when I went to college, I. I was roommates with a guy my my sophomore year. His name was Luke Kenny, and um, he had just got out of the Pennsylvania State Penitentiary, and they put him in my room. <laughs> he actually had they required me to be under his bunk, and he had to be on top. So, and he had like nightmares and stuff, and that was scary. But anyways, one thing I actually when he came to the, he came to the so I was, this is a fundamentals Baptist Bible College. So you know he came with this um, electric electric guitar, and wanted to be a rock Christian rock star. So. <laughs> That didn't work out. But anyways, uh, what was interesting, he started growing in the Lord. We started going down to Madison, Wisconsin and giving the gospel. And what I realized is this guy was memorizing more. He had memorized some more scripture than I had. And, uh, and it wasn't just like he knew it. It was like it was a part of him, you know. And I thought to myself, how in the world did I grow up in a church? And I don't. And he has more. He's memorizing more scripture than I am. So then I started memorizing the word and really, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, meditating on God's word. And I went to a church in Milwaukee and we were part of a kids program and I realized what was happening in this church was the same thing that had happened to me growing up. You know, 20% of the kids that are really smart, well actually back then it's more like 50%, like today it's like 20%, but 20% of the, you know, 50% of the kids were able to go in there and like look at the verse and be able to say it right away. You know, the other 50% of the kids were like, I'm not smart enough, I can't do that. And, uh, but even, even those kids that were able to do that, like, you know, 10 minutes after the, they said the verse, they didn't really know it, you know? And so I just, I started thinking at that moment, like, there's gotta be something better than this. Like, and I don't know if this is actually biblical, because I'm not, not that it's, it's not unbiblical, it's not wrong. It's just like, is this actually the model that we should be teaching for our children and for our churches? And then I met my wife and we got married and we were still serving that church. And so I just started thinking through, like, what would I do if I was able to put, like a biblical philosophy of scripture memory into practice. And what I came to really was this idea of scripture meditation and my desire for my family. And also if I was ever, the Lord allowed me to be a pastor, to be able to implement this somehow into the church. And so, and then a couple months later, I went to South Carolina and I was a family pastor there for um, almost a little over 13, 14 years. So, and, uh, and so, so I want to just talk through that because what I came back to was I, I came back to this idea that I think that there should be something a little bit more systematic, something that like you can actually be done with something and go back and be able to say, this is what I memorized. And I started doing that actually in college. That was some of it. Some of it, I, I thought it should be connected more to application. There should be some, in some way I should be able to understand, like not just think about this verse and know what it says, but actually think about it and know what it means it should be somehow um, implemented in my life in a repetitious way. In other words, it should be something that it's not just I, I, I look at it once for a program or something, but it's this is something where it's it's a part of my daily thought process. And, uh, and then it, um, it's something that can be 
talked about with other people. So I'm kind of running out of time, so I've got to keep going here. So let's talk about like what does it look like to meditate intentionally and affectionately, contemplating God and his word. And so what I want to do is I want to think about renewing our mind with meditation. And I think it looks like a certain way of thinking. And, and, and you can talk about this with scripture memory. I think you can, you can apply this to when you hear a sermon and you're taking notes and what do you um, do after that. I think you can apply this to, you know, you read your Bible in the morning and it's 11 o'clock, it's 10.45, and you, st- you don't even know what you read, right? Because you read it and you left and you're not, you never meditated on it. So what does it look like to have this renewed mind with meditation? Really, what does meditation look like? Well, it's disciplined thinking. So we're just going to go through a bunch of verses and again, we're not going to have time to go through all these, so I'm not going to buzz through them. But 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 5 speaks about you know, casting down arguments and you know, thoughts, opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. It's taking every thought captive. So every thought I think must be a disciplined thought. Every thought I think is a thought of obedience or a thought of disobedience. So it's, I think meditation includes us realizing everything we're thinking about is an act of obedience or disobedience. We're to take every thought captive. Psalm 19.14, that the words of my mouth and then the meditation of my heart, so what my heart muses on, should be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. And so, therefore, every thought I have is a question of, does this honor God or does this uh, displease Him? Philippians 4.8 says that we are to think upon things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And he says, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So there's, there's certain things where certain qualities of our thoughts we're to have. There's certain things we're, we are to think on. There's, I should say there's qual- a quality of thinking we're to think on. There's certain qualities that should characterize our thoughts. There are certain qualities that should characterize our thoughts. How about 2 Timothy 2.15? Oh, do you guys remember the word from the other night? Spudazzo? There we go. He's got that in our head, doesn't he? Second Timothy two fifteen. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so, the disciplined thinking also means that you're studying God's word, right? You're accurately um, handling His word. And then Acts seventeen eleven. Of course, the Bereans, um, the Bereans, they received the word with gladness, eagerness. And they examined the word. So there's this diligence that goes into even studying. So disciplined thinking isn't just like, you know, thinking throughout the day in a way that's like about each, but it's actually taking God's word and thinking about studying that and then applying that in in how I think throughout my day. And it's affectionate thinking. So in other words, it's not just having words that rumble in my head, but actually they interact with my desires. So Psalm 119.9, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation uh, all the day, and so it's 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 you know the the mind and the um, affections going on a date together, right? I mean, you're, so it's I love your law. So it's not just the law of God. Oh, that's great. Or it's just not just. It's actually um, having an affection for the Word of God. Psalm one, verse two. His delight. So this is the the man of God, the godly one who doesn't 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 walk in the way of sinners, right? He doesn't sit in the seat of his cornfield, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So his pleasure, like he takes pleasure in God's word. He loves the word of God. So he's interacting with God's word with his, you know, so it's like, it's like he takes comfort in God's word. He finds peace in God's word. He, he has joy in the word of God because he finds joy in God himself. 
and he meditates on it day and night. Psalm one, Psalm one nineteen ninety two. Do I do that twice? Oh no, here it is. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So you know, you think about that. So he's saying, I I had this affliction, and when you're afflicted, you know, Proverbs. 1225 says anxiety of the heart causes depression. So, you know, when you're afflicted, you, your heart is anxious. Your heart can be tempted, I should say, to be anxious. And it can cause you to spiral into depression, right? So you have all these problems going on in your life and your heart starts thinking about this and there's anxiety and you're spiraling. But he says, why did it, that not happen to me? Why did I not perish in my affliction? Because actually I was in love with the word of God. So I, my affections were set upon your word. If your law had not been my love, my delight... I would have perished in my affliction. And then, of course, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 6 speaks about loving God. I don't know what that was. Someone's giving me a signal, I guess. And uh, speaks about um, having God's word in our heart. Loving God with all our heart and putting his words in our heart. And I think it's also prayerful thinking. We're to think. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 7 says, Think. So it's a present tense. So put your mind upon what I say. Of course, that's the teachings of Paul. He's telling Timothy this. So it's like, think about that. That's our responsibility. We're to put our minds upon the teachings of what Paul said, his teachings or the teachings of God's word. And then for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So who's the one who gives us understanding? It's God. And so this is a cooperative thing. We put our mind upon his word and his spirit gives us understanding. Proverbs chapter two, verse six, the Lord gives wisdom so who's the one who gives wisdom and knowledge and understanding? It's God, the Lord. Uh, Luke 24.5, of course, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he's the one that opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And what's the scriptures about? It's about Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, that, uh, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So there's this prayerful thinking. So it's not just like thinking that's like, you know, it's not this repetitious type of thinking that's devoid of prayer. I think it's actually engaging our mind and asking God, God, help me to understand. It's, it's contemplating through prayer the words of God. And then it's repetitious thinking. And we could list a lot of verses up here for this one, right? But Psalm 1-2 says that it's his delight every Sunday morning, Right? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates every Sunday morning from 10.30 to 12. No, right? Or it's his delight just in the morning. It's his delight all day, all day long, day and night, right? It's, it's, it's part of his regular life. The word of Christ in Colossians 3.16, the word of Christ should dwell in us richly. It's like abundantly. It should be overflowing in our, in our, of our, out of our heart. Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So this is something that's to be spoken. And think about it for Joshua. How, how is it possible for Joshua, you know, he's not carrying around this book of the law and then reading it, right? How is it possible that it doesn't stop coming out of his mouth? If you're living in that society, how is that possible? It's in your head. Yeah, it's memorized. So, so, so another, this is basically saying that this, you should have God's word memorized, right? But and, and what what's the means to do that? Like really, what's the means to do that? And then what's the application of that? Like how do you, what do you what do you do with that memory? What, what's the purpose of having it memorized? You shall meditate on it day and night. And we'll talk about that in a second more. It's doctrinal thinking, uh, Romans six seventeen, that he says that Paul gave thanks. The scripture says Paul gave thanks because you have become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching. 
So you're obedient, notice that, from the heart to there's a pattern of teaching. So it's like he's thinking about a certain you know, doctrinal um, propositions, teachings. You know, 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So there's these theological teachings that the apostles passed on. And so, and there's a sense of like, I don't know if they necessarily systematize them, but the idea is that there are truths, there are doctrinal truths that they were to think on. And then, of course, Paul says he, he did not shrink from declaring to the church the whole counsel of God. And then multidisciplinary thinking. That's maybe not one you thought about before. But think about, and I don't have these verses up here because it's too long of passages, but think about Deuteronomy chapter 6 where he says that you're to have these words be in your heart, Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, you shall keep, uh, he says, these words I command you today shall be in your heart, so we're to put them within our heart, renew our minds with the word of God, and he says you shall teach them to your children, talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, bind them as a sign upon your hand, you should write them down on the doorposts of your house, and so my, I, I think what's interesting here is you, what you see in this passage, these two passages, Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 6, is that you see that you're, you're passing on God's word, not just to your children, but the idea is even for yourself, that you are interacting with God's word, you hear God's word, you're teaching God's word, you're talking about God's word, you're seeing God's word. You know, there, there's, there's different things that remind you of God's word. You're writing God's word down. There's these multidisciplinary ways in which you are meditating on God's word. So it's, it's not, I, I think the idea is it's not just that you pick up a Bible and you're like, okay, I got it. You know, it's like, how can we interact with our full person to meditate on God's word? And actually, the last one I have on there is reimagine God's word. Does anyone know what that text is? Luke 17, 32. It's, it's, the, it's the famous, well, there's some famous sermons that are pretty enjoyable to listen to, but it's remember Lot's wife. I can't remember who the pastor is that preached that one. It's really famous. Do you remember who that is? Is it Spurgeon? Is that the one? I can't. Is it? It's like a pretty awesome sermon. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. That was a good one. Anyways. But, you know, think about remember Lot's wife. Okay. What? Just that she's a pillar of salt? No, it's the idea is, is meditate on that. Like reimagine what that was like. In fact, the scripture is written in narrative. For what purpose? I think it's for the purpose of us imagining what was going on. And so, and, and so again, there's, there's this idea, this multidisciplinary way of thinking. And then... Last of all, applicational thinking. So you're, you're, you're meditating on God's word for the purpose of obeying it. So Joshua 1.8, he says that you're to, you know, you're going to be tempted to be afraid. So there's your emotions, right? And I know it's more than just emotions, but you're tempted to be afraid. You should be courageous. You're supposed to do God's will by taking the land. So how are you supposed to accomplish that? Well, meditate on God's word day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So it's for the purpose of application. Even in the parable of the four, four soils, the, the four soils says that we're to hear God's word, we're to understand it, it's application, so that it can bear fruit. So it, it should be meditation that is based, that meditation upon God's word for the purpose of application. So I think that, you know, I think that meditation, uh, renewing your mind by meditating on God's word includes disciplined thinking, affectionate thinking, prayerful thinking, repetitious thinking, doctrinal thinking, multidisciplinary thinking, applicational thinking. I'm sure you could add some others. I don't really know. But, um, but that's what that is right there. And so now here for the cheap plug. Because I, I, what, 
so there, I think there's, let me say first of all something, and then I'll say like what I'm going to say about true trackers, and that is that I think for all of us, we need to consider, no matter what our age is, is if we are truly um, thinking about God's word in these ways on a regular basis. So when we hear a sermon, when we read God's word in the morning, you know, is, is it just something to listen to and walk away from? Or is this something that is a part of our, our daily meditation? In fact, one of the Puritans wrote this, was really interesting. He said, it's like, the knowledge of God is like a torch in a garden. So, you know, it can give some light, but it doesn't affect anything around it. But the meditation on God's word is like the sun. And it lights up those things around it, but also gives life, right? It warms, it warms things. It, it, it shines upon the grass and photosynthesis and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and that's what meditation does. Meditation, it, it warms the affections. It, it makes alive the, the spirit. And so the point is, is that I think it's something we all should consider ourselves. And then as far as like a pastor, as far as a parent, my desire was I want, I want my children to be able to, and I want the children of church to be able to biblically be discipled. I want them to meditate on God's word. And so when we came up with this program, when I came up with this program, a number of years ago, it was really based upon a philosophy of, of teaching children and families and also of meditation to memorization. And so we came up with the idea that we wanted the kids to memorize based upon doctrinal themes. And so we divided, um, we went through really doctrines and really verses that we wanted kids to memorize. And we divided our verses into 18 different doctrines. And I know you might be thinking, I took systematic theology. I don't remember 18 different doctrines. Well, some of them are subdivided. You know, like theology proper is, is um, the nature of God. And then it's also the greatness of God and the goodness of God. So, so some of that happens, and there's some just more practical things as well, um, like, the, like my struggles and things like that. But anyways, you divide them up in a doctrinal scope and sequence, so doctrines and into themes and and then also integrated them over uh, for all the ages. So all the ages are learning the same doctrines at the same time. And the idea is if we're, as a family, supposed to be thinking and meditating on God's word, I want to do that together. You know, I want to do that. And it might, it might look different for the five-year-old than it's going to look like for the 12-year-old. But the idea is I want us to be able to have these conversations about God and his word together as a family. And so really, I think as a church, if I'm going to provide something to families, I don't want to say, you know, every, you know if you have, I have five kids. So it's like, yeah, at one time, my kids are getting older now, but at one time I'm having all these kids, you know, in these different programs. And it's like, I don't want to be able to be like, I don't have a clue what you're even learning, so I don't really even care. Like, I want to be able to say, hey guys, I know some of you are learning different levels, but like, here's what we're learning uh, as a family together. Let's talk about this. And then also just a, a philosophy of meditation and memorization. And, and one of the ideas that actually I got in college from talking to a friend in college, and that was putting scripture memory into the catechism format. And that is that there's a question asked. So the idea is it's a life question. It's an application, if you want to say question. And the answer is the scripture verse. And so you think about catechism, which I love catechism. But you think about catechism, it's usually a a true statement, a question question with a true statement, right? This is a a question, and the answer is a Bible verse. So, like, I have one of the books up here. So I'll just, I'm going to randomly open it. Hopefully I can remember what the verse says, right? Oh, here we go. How should a Christian pray to God? And this one is speaking about prayer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Who knows what Philippians 4, 6 says? Anyone get that memorized in here? Depends what version you have, I guess. I mean, but be anxious for nothing, but everything is by prayer and supplication for Thanksgiving. Okay, so the point is that the response is that verse. So how should a Christian pray to God? And that's the response. Um, 
And, and the idea is that's doctrinal. So the kids are learning what, what is the, you know, it's based upon a doctrine, but they're learning what, what's the doctrine within that verse. So like, I'll, I'll give one that's maybe a little bit like, here's God's greatness. God cannot change. Um, can God change who he is? What's the response? Malachi 3, verse 6. Anyone know what Malachi 3, verse 6 says? The Lord change there you go. Right, so, so you see that. Can God change who he is? What's the answer? No, right? But the answer is actually the verse. And so the idea was to be able to teach them to think about life in regard to what's the question here and what's God's answer. And actually the answer is a verse that I'm memorizing and ultimately something that's locked in for long-term memory. And, and then also one that has, has in, is, includes daily repetition, regular review. So one that they can actually go back two years later, but even throughout the week, they're daily um, repeating that, reviewing that. And so just real quickly, I know we're out of time. So I'll just say it for the last three minutes I got to buzz through this. And that is, so wh- what we did is we came up with an approach to help children be able to memorize God's word, not just like the 20% that can, you know, look at it for five minutes and then or five seconds and be able to, say it, and even maybe have it memorized the rest of their life because they're so smart, you know. But actually, every kid in there can actually be able to memorize God's Word. And that is, what we do is, instead of it being, like, you say a verse at the end of the week, you know, um, and hopefully you, you know, look over it five minutes before, and you can say it and repeat it back to that person. But actually, the our program is designed so that the kids, each day, are reviewing the verse. And so the points for them are, are according to them every day reviewing that verse, and the idea is if you review, review a verse every day for seven days, by the end of that week, you're going to have it memorized. And then also in a way that's a multidisciplinary approach. And so what happens is the kids, they write down the verse. They write down the first letter of the verse, actually. But they write down the first letter of the verse, say it out loud. So they say the question in verse like that. They say the question in verse to someone else. And what's the last one they do? I just forgot. Um, they... I got it. Isn't that terrible? I forgot my own program. There we go. Oh, you tap it. You sit, you see the verse and you tap it and you say, you know, this book of the law shall not depart. The idea is that you're doing something that is um, interacting with God's word in a way that um, is like what some people call a kinesthetic approach to scripture memory. And so, um, so it's multidisciplinary thinking. What's interesting about that is before when I had my kids doing it, where they, you know, hopefully would we would go over it during the week at some point, you know, and after, and we do still do that, but like after, you know, um, or whatever it is, I'm out of time. But and that, by the end of the week, I'm like, oh, do you hope you have this memorized? But actually, since we have done it this way, I don't even go over the verse with my kids. I mean, we might talk about it, but I don't have to like go over and over and over and over with it. Because if they're doing it every day, by the end of the week, from the from the four-year-old all the way up to the, you know, whatever-year-old, um, they have it memorized themselves, and so, which is a, a really neat thing. And then coordinate with daily devotions and lessons. And so the idea is that they are learning how to apply that verse as they go through that doctrinal theme through that week. So, so this is kind of like the end result for me of really this idea of what does it mean to have meditation to memorization to life transformation. And uh, it's definitely been a blessing for our church and for our uh, family.